When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, Hit Parade listeners. I have a special announcement. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Slate. And for a limited time, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. As a member, you get so many benefits, including right here at Hit Parade. You're about to hear part one of this Hit Parade episode, and part two will arrive in your podcast feed at the end of the month. But if you'd like to hear this episode all at once, the day it drops, you can sign up right now for Slate Plus. As a Slate Plus member, you'll get to hear every Hit Parade episode in full the day it arrives. Plus, Hit Parade The Bridge, our bonus episodes, with guest interviews, deeper dives on our episode topics, and pop chart trivia. Plus, you'll get no ads on any Slate podcast, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments, such as my favorite part of every week's Slate Culture Gabfest, their conversational Slot Plus segments. So, sign up at slate.com slash hitparadeplus to keep Slate going for another 25 years. But hurry, This offer of $25 off only lasts through October 31st, so sign up now at slate.com slash hitparadeplus. Welcome back to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On our last episode, we talked about the splintering of 70s punk into such 80s genres as hardcore and the gradual, simultaneous rise of pop punk, which was galvanized in the mid-90s by Green Day and The Offspring. But also emerging alongside pop-punk in the 90s was a more florid, contemplative, and emotional strain of punk, literally called emo, that began to rise commercially in the late 90s and especially the 2000s. Like pop-punk, which dated back to the 70s, the roots of the punk offshoot known as emo went back at least a decade before its commercial emergence, to the peak of 80s hardcore. And like pop-punk or grunge, emo bands didn't care for the moniker their music was given. Andy Greenwald, in the introduction to his definitive book Nothing Feels Good, Punk Rock, Teenagers, and Emo, writes, quote, Not only can no one agree on what it means, there is not now, nor has there ever been, a single major band that admits to being emo. Not one. Unquote. (laughs) 
Greenwald goes on to claim that emo isn't even really a genre at all. That what draws together the first wave of bands in the 80s and 90s underground and the wave of platinum bands in the aughts is all about the fans. Emo is in the eye and ear of the beholder, but there are generally agreed-upon precursors. Early on, emo was more about the lyrics than the music. Seminal band Minor Threat were titans of the Washington, D.C. early 80s hardcore scene, but a closer listen to frontman Ian Mackay's lyrics revealed heart-on-sleeve sentiments not normally associated with punk. Minor Threat, in turn, inspired the formation of D.C. band Rites of Spring, in which Guy Pachotto matched Mackay's open-hearted lyrics and paired it with more angular, jaggedly melodic punk that was termed emotional hardcore or emo-core. The early emo core bands were also drawing inspiration from a British alt-rock band only tangentially related to punk, but legendary for their open-hearted lyrics, The Smiths, led by eternally morose vocalist and lyricist Morrissey. DC writer and musician Andrew Bojan later defined emo as, quote, an unnatural attraction to The Smiths that mates with a love of power chords. Unquote. How I'm the 18 pale descendant of some old queen or other. Oh, has the world changed the river changed? Oh, has the world changed the river changed? By the early 90s, emo was starting to take shape as not just a lyrical perspective, but a sound. Critics generally point to two 90s bands as codifying what the punk subgenre would become. L.A. band Jawbreaker, which Andy Greenwald calls, quote, the Rosetta Stone of contemporary emo. And Seattle band Sunny Day Real Estate whose acclaimed 1994 album Diary became Sub Pop Records' second best-selling album of the 90s after Nirvana's Bleach. Sunny Day Real Estate had the good fortune to emerge just as Seattle music was blowing up, even though they sounded more spiky than grungy. They even drew the attention of a young John Stewart, who invited the band onto his MTV talk show in 1994. Well, uh... Sorry. Uh, for everyone who lives in my building, blame these next guys. I uh, got their CD. It's amazing. Please welcome Performing Seven from their debut album, Diary, Sunny Day Real Estate. <laughs> Still, even with all of this acclaim and word-of-mouth publicity, neither Sunny Day Real Estate nor Jawbreaker hit the charts in 1994, the year of pop-punk, 
Green Day, and Offspring. It was also the year that a much more winsome band from Los Angeles broke, one that seemed to have little to do with the emerging emo scene. They were a little grungy, a little punk, a bit metal, very poppy, and hard to classify. But they would prove oddly pivotal to emo's pop crossover. Weezer, fronted by bespectacled singer-songwriter Rivers Cuomo, broke wide open in 1994 and 95 with their self-titled debut, better known as The Blue Album, produced by Cars frontman and new wave icon Rick Okasik. Buddy Holly, Weezer's kitschy single pairing boomer-era pop culture with Generation X slang, was a smash across alt-rock, album rock, and even top 40 radio. To many listeners, especially their initial wave of Gen X fans, Weezer were defined by Buddy Holly as the kings of too clever nerd rock. But that's not how Weezer's millennial fans heard them. If you want to destroy my sweater, hold this bed as I walk away. On tracks like My Name is Jonas and the hit Undone, the sweater song, teen fans keyed into Rivers Cuomo laying bare his insecurities over crashing pseudo-punk. If it wasn't quite emo, it was certainly emotional. The Blue Album's final and most acclaimed single, Say It Ain't So, a number seven modern rock hit in the summer of 95, was a potent combination of cryptic but very vulnerable lyrics atop metallic power chords. Pitchfork magazine would later rank Say It Ain't So among the 10 best songs of the 1990s, calling Weezer, quote, a bizarrely influential touchstone for so many young bands. But what made the Weezer story even stranger was how they followed up the Blue Album. Rivers Cuomo emerged in 1996 with Pinkerton, a CD laced with even more showily self-pitying and self-flagellating lyrics. Its lead single kicked off with the line, God damn you half-Japanese girls, do it to me every time. And its opening track sported the literal-minded title, Tired of Sex. Monday night, I'm making gin. Tuesday night, I'm making men. Wednesday night, I'm making judgment. Pinkerton not only garnered poor reviews from Gen X critics, it was regarded by the music business as a colossal misfire. Coming after the double platinum blue album, which rode the Billboard album chart for a year and a half, Pinkerton spawned no top 10 modern rock hits, dropped off the charts within three months, and didn't even go gold. At least not that year. Once again, Weezer's millennial fans felt very differently. When I'm Pinkerton's 
Pinkerton spent the next five years as a word of mouth hit, quietly selling to thousands of teenagers. Songs like Pink Triangle, Rivers Cuomo's lament about a possibly gay girl he was crushing on from afar, connected with lovelorn Gen Y fans who came to regard Pinkerton as an unlikely emo totem. By the time Cuomo emerged from his self-imposed seclusion in 2001 and began releasing music again, Pinkerton had gone gold and his fan base had been rebooted with a new army of young fans. While Weezer were momentarily reinventing themselves as an emo-adjacent inspiration in the late 90s, other bands much closer to the sound of emo, as defined by Jawbreaker or Sunny Day Real Estate, began garnering their own buzz. These included Arizona band Jimmy Eat World, who infused their punk pop with brisk melodies. Floridian singer-songwriter Chris Caraba, who recorded under the ever-evolving band he dubbed Dashboard Confessional. Caraba was to emo what Billy Bragg was to punk in the 80s, an acoustic balladeer who attacked his guitar like a punk would. Screaming Infidelities, a heartsick song with the iconic uber-emo line, Your Hair, It's Everywhere, so defined Dashboard it wound up appearing on two of their studio albums as well as an MTV Unplugged LP. Your hair, it's everywhere Screaming infidelities Taking its way By 2000, there was evidence Emo was making enough of an impression, not counting Weezer, that it might actually prove commercial. New Found Glory, a band from the same South Florida scene as Dashboard Confessional, saw their 2000 single Hit or Miss, a song with pop-punk energy but wistful emo lyrics, reach number 15 on the modern rock chart. But Emo's true radio breakthrough would come a year later, thanks to a single that disguised its misfit sympathies beneath a shiny pop exterior. Released in the fall of 2001, The Middle was the lead single from Jimmy Eat World's third album, Bleed American. While on the surface, the song played like a perky party jam, the video revealed its true theme. An introvert attends a house party of popular kids stripping to their underwear, and despite not fitting in with the crowd, he manages to find an equally shy girl. The song's lyrics, just try your best, try everything you can, be yourself, it doesn't matter if it's good enough. Live right now, yeah, just be yourself, it doesn't matter if it's good Someone else. It just takes some time. Little girl in the middle of the ride. 
the middle made emo broadly relatable and musically irresistible debuting on the modern rock chart in november 2001 the middle took nearly six months to reach number one on that chart in april of 02 just as it was cresting at alt rock stations jimmy eat world cracked the hot 100 and amazingly reached number five on the pop chart by june one week later, New Found Glory's album Sticks and Stones debuted on the Billboard 200 album chart all the way up at number four, the highest any emo-affiliated album had ever charted. Bands like New Found Glory were already starting to blur the lines between pop punk and emo. From 2000 through 2002, pop punk was still running the table, generating massive rock radio hits like Green Day's sugary Minority. And Sum 41's Beastie Boys-esque Fat Lip. Both of these songs were modern rock number ones, but only minor hits on the Hot 100, even though they sounded for all the world like straight-up pop records. Even the mighty Green Day was not guaranteed to hit every time at Top 40 Radio. But what if, rather than trying to cross from punk to pop, an artist came along who fused the pop machine with punk iconography? Say, a combination of Hot Topic and Hot 100, Skate Punk and Strip Mall. This turned out to be a pretty clever idea. Canadian teen star Avril Lavigne became the ultimate TRL punk in 2002. Produced by a trio of pop songwriters who called themselves The Matrix, Levine sang like a teen starlet, but presented as a punk dilettante. Loose necktie, baggy pants with wallet chain, raccoon eyeliner, skateboard. Complicated, her debut single, was only slightly more must up than the average adult contemporary radio song, but it played on MTV like pop punk. Complicated peaked at number two on the Hot 100 in the summer of 02. Levine's mall punk iconography was well-timed because millennial megapop was on the downslope by 2002. Even Britney Spears' latest album, 2001's Britney, opened big but then generated no top 10 hits. Its most memorable single, I'm a Slave for You, peaked at a lowly number 27. Britney wouldn't return to the pop top 10 with Toxic for nearly three years. That's what made Avril's positioning so clever, or crass if you were a punk true believer. She dodged the decline of teen pop. 
hers was more a look than a sound. Although on certain tracks like the number 10 hit Skater Boy, Levine's jumpy hooks did lean in the direction of pop punk. Meanwhile, Blink-182 were still multi-platinum sellers and chart-toppers in the early aughts, although they began complicating their goofball persona. Their 2002 top 10 modern rock hit, Stay Together for the Kids, chronicled the devastating effects of divorce. And one year later, Blink recorded a song directly inspired by post-punk and goth heroes, The Cure. I Miss You topped the modern rock chart in early 04 and represented an entirely new sound for Blink-182. Will you come home and stop this pain tonight? Stop this pain tonight. Without actually going full emo, it's as if Blink's Mark Hoppus and Tom DeLonge read the room and adjusted their demeanor for a more earnest time. By 2003 and 2004, emo was rapidly becoming every hipster teen's favorite music, no matter how they defined that. Bands scoring radio hits included AFI, aka A Fire Inside who offered soaring emo with goth overtones. AFI broke through with the number seven modern rock hit, Girls Not Grey. Or Coheed and Cambria, a metal-leaning progressive or prog rock band whose complex sound shifted toward emo. Their 2004 number 13 modern rock hit, A Favor House Atlantic, showcased lead singer Claudio Sanchez's impossibly high voice. Or the contemplative Thursday, who would shift from hushed emo to howling screamo within the same song. Signals Over the Air was a modern rock top 30 hit. In addition, the established stars of emo were continuing to top the charts, including Jimmy Eat World, who scored another modern rock number one with 2004's anthemic work. And Dashboard Confessional, who finally fulfilled their promise when their 2003 album A Mark, A Mission, A Brand, A Scar debuted on the Billboard album chart at number two. 
One year later, Dashboard's Chris Caraba was invited to sing the theme song to the blockbuster superhero sequel, Spider-Man 2. Vindicated became Dashboard Confessional's biggest modern rock hit, peaking at number two. But classic pop punk would experience one more triumph in 2004, and it came from the band that had popularized the hybrid in the first place, Green Day. In more than a decade of recording on a major label, a number one album had somehow eluded Green Day. Both 1994's Dookie and its 1995 follow-up Insomniac had peaked at number two, and two more studio albums peaked on lower rungs of the top ten. Green Day's 2000 album, Warning, only went gold, their lowest seller since their indie days, suggesting that the eternally youthful band was getting long in the tooth. It would have been folly to predict that Warning's follow-up a Tommy-style concept album that Billy Joe Armstrong envisioned with interconnected songs about suburbia and American politics would improve upon that chart performance. But that's precisely what American Idiot did. Released just weeks before the 2004 U.S. presidential election, Green Day's seventh studio album debuted at number one, their first chart topper ever. American Idiot would become Green Day's biggest seller since Dookie, their longest charting album ever at nearly three years, and the album with their biggest pop hits. Boulevard of Broken Dreams, a stately ballad-slash-anthem that echoed the tune of Oasis's Wonderwall, peaked at number two on the Hot 100 in early 2005. Only 50 Cent's Candy Shop prevented it from reaching number one. Boulevard won both the Grammy for Record of the Year and Video of the Year at the 2005 MTV Video Music Awards. The American Idiot album also won the Grammy for Best Rock Album and was even nominated for Album of the Year. Green Day had become downright respectable. unwitting arrival at something like adulthood in their mid-30s was, in a way, well-timed. They would continue to score hit albums and rock radio hits, but by the mid-aughts, it was about time for teenagers to find someone more contemporary to idolize, a band that actually worshipped Green Day, 
but were still in the process of growing up. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. For Fallout Boy, a foursome of hardcore punk players from the suburbs north of Chicago, the snark started early. Their first mini-LP, recorded about a year after the band's formation, was titled Fallout Boy's Evening Out With Your Girlfriend, and the album included songs with such titles as Switchblades and Infidelity, the World's Not Waiting for Five Tired Boys in a Broken Down Van, Parker Lewis Can't Lose But I'm Gonna Give It My Best Shot, and the comparatively simple but no less self-deprecating Honorable Mention. I served out my attention, and in the end I got it. album was written largely by lead singer Patrick Stump, but as Fallout Boy evolved, virtually all of the lyric writing shifted to the band's self-confident and enterprising bassist Pete Wentz, the de facto leader of the group. By 2003, 
Fall Out Boy had signed to the Florida-based label Fueled by Ramen, co-founded by future Interscope president John Janik and Vinnie Fiorello, drummer for Florida ska-punk band Less Than Jake. The Less Than Jake had nothing to do with emo per se, but the label Fiorello and Janik co-founded would wind up helping to take emo from underground to overground in the 2000s, as emo merged into pop punk. In 2003, Fueled by Ramen released Fall Out Boy's full-length debut album Take This to Your Grave, which Pete Wentz's friend Manny Mostafi, a fellow Chicago punk artist, described as, quote, sounding like Hot Topic, but feeling like CBGB. Take This to Your Grave would be Fall Out Boy's first and last full-length indie album. The band had attracted a small bidding war among the major labels, and they signed a deal with Island Records permitting them to issue their debut on Fueled by Ramen, thereby building their cred in the punk scene, and then moved to Island for their second album. Not long after their departure for Island Records, Pete Wentz and Patrick Stump launched their own label, Decadence, spelled like Decay Dance, as a subsidiary of Fueled by Ramen. Decadence would prove itself pivotal to the explosion of emo later on. It made sense that, by 2003, major labels were hungry for a band like Fall Out Boy. Pop punk was still selling, and emo was ascendant. In 2003, Warner Music label Reprise Records signed New Jersey band My Chemical Romance, led by brothers Gerard and Mikey Way. CR offered a sonically and visually striking hybrid of emo, post-hardcore, and even goth, with Gerard made up to look like a distant cousin of The Cure's Robert Smith. Their second album and reprise debut, 2004's Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge, was preceded by the witty I'm Not Okay, I Promise which peaked at number four on the modern rock chart. My Chemical Romance followed up that hit with the song that helped define the band, Helena, So Long and Good Night, which came complete with a super goth video depicting a funeral for the song's titular heroine, Helena not only peaked just outside of the modern rock top 10, it crossed to the pop charts, reaching number 33 on the Hot 100. But emo's true pop explosion was yet to come. 
Fall Out Boy spent the winter of 2004 and 2005 recording their major label debut, which they would title From Under the Cork Tree. It was named after a setting from the children's book The Story of Ferdinand, about a bull who preferred to lie under a cork tree than participate in bullfights, a fine metaphor for emo itself. Patrick Stump wrote all of the album's music and Pete Wentz all of the lyrics, a division of labor that resulted in soaring melodies coupled with random, lyrically unrelated titles like Sophomore Slump or Comeback of the Year. One of the last tracks written for the album wound up being its first single. Reprise Records saw the song's potential but hated its chorus and almost made Wentz and Stump change it. Quote, our label told us the chorus was too wordy and the guitars were too heavy and that the radio wasn't going to play it, Wentz later recalled in Spin magazine. The label was wrong on just about every count. The crunching guitars plus the inscrutable wordiness, that was what made it work. That's what made Sugar, We're Going Down, emo pop's signature hit, rocking but also aching punky but also poppy, a showcase for Patrick Stump, possessor of what might be emo's quintessential singing voice. And by the way, radio certainly did play it. As I noted at the top of our show, Fall Out Boy's Sugar We're Going Down took all of the summer of 2005 to climb the charts, cracking the modern rock top 10 by the end of August and the Hot 100's top 10 about a month later. By October, it was sitting in the top 10 just a couple of spaces away from Green Day's final top 10 single from American Idiot, Wake Me Up When September Ends. To be clear, this was a coincidence. No one at the time would have regarded it as a passing of the pop-punk torch. After all, Fall Out Boy were only on their first major label single, and there was no guarantee they'd be back in the top ten. Except within a couple of months, they were. Dance Dance, whose video, shot in a high school gym complete with formation dancing, was a TRL favorite, reached number 9 on the Hot 100 by January 2006. It did even better on the modern rock chart than Sugar We're Going Down had, peaking at number 2. 
Dance Dance not only confirmed Fall Out Boy were among the millennial generation's favorite bands, it also kicked off an epic year for emo, filled with frothy peaks and wordy song titles. Fall Out Boy lyricist Pete Wentz may have popularized this trend, but the first band he and Patrick Stump signed to their new Decadence label raised it to an art form. In fact, they turned a lot of things into art projects. Sit tight, I'm gonna need you to keep time, come on, just snap, snap, snap your fingers for me. The only difference between martyrdom and suicide is press coverage, <laughs> was the debut single by Panic at the Disco, a then foursome from Las Vegas, led by four-octave vocalist Brendan Urie. The band's name included an interstitial exclamation point after the word Panic, and the members were in high school when they began circulating their early recordings on the then-cutting-edge platforms Live Journal and MySpace. Panic even experienced an early backlash from online haters after they got signed and before they recorded an album, an ominous sign of our social media future. Panic recorded their debut album, A Fever You Can't Sweat Out, while Fallout Boy were busy promoting From Under the Cork Tree. Released in the winter of 2006, the only difference reached number five on the modern rock chart in just two months. By 2006, the modern rock chart had become a playground for emo bands. Taking Back Sunday, a Long Island, New York emo band who'd been releasing music since 2000 and scoring few hits, found themselves in the modern rock top 10 in the summer of 06 with Make Damn Sure. aforementioned AFI went to number one on the chart that summer with Miss Murder, with a cryptic lyric and a stomping beat. The album it came from, December Underground, debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 in June. Both AFI's and Taking Back Sunday's albums went gold. By July, Panic at the Disco's A Fever You Can't Sweat Out went platinum. Panic was now crossing over to the same pop audience who had made stars out of Fall Out Boy, thanks to a single making waves at Top 40 Radio. Well, imagine as I'm pacing the pews in a church corridor and I... I write sins, not tragedies. Had it all, emo-wise. A Baroque title, albeit one that was only five words long, equally Baroque instrumentation built around a cello played pizzicato style, and a crashing punk chorus with a lyrical hook that seemed to be cribbed from a teenager's diary. Quote, haven't you people ever heard of closing the goddamn door? Things. 
it became Panic at the Disco's signature hit, reaching number seven on the Hot 100 and number two on Billboard's mainstream Top 40 radio chart. It was also Panic's first music video. The surprise was that it took them that long to do one. And the clip was very memorable. A circus-themed wedding with an elaborate plot involving rude guests and a disloyal bride and Brendan Urie at the center of it, dressed as the circus's ringmaster, complete with a top hat. Closing a goddamn door, no, it's much better to face these kinds of things with a sense of voice and rationality. The band later revealed that the video was shot for around $30,000, a fraction of what a typical hit MTV video cost, which made what happened on that year's Video Music Awards a real shock. In an upset, Panic at the Disco won Video of the Year over more hyped clips by Madonna, Shakira, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, one year after Green Day had won that same prize. I write scenes, not tragedies. Producer Brian Bonfiglio and director Shane C. Drake. Wow. Um, I guess I just want to start by, you know, thanking all the fans that voted for us. And uh, everybody that supported us in the past year, it's been amazing. We can't, can't thank you enough, so. We would like to thank uh, all our friends and family back home. John Janik, Pete Wentz, and everybody in Fall Out Boy. Uh, everybody at Fuel by Ramen, everybody at Atlantic. This is completely unexpected. This, you might say, was Emo's holy shit moment. A sign that the genre was now defining trends. Not just musically, but culturally. Even fashion. In 2006, sales at mall chain Hot Topic, purveyor of goth and emo clothing, reached a new high. On city streets, men who would formerly have rocked the Strokes look with shaggy bedhead hair and ragged jeans switched up their style to the emo look, skinny jeans, sometimes girls' jeans on boys, angular hair with floppy fringes, guy liner, and nail polish. A month after Panic's triumph at the VMAs, My Chemical Romance came back with a new look, military jackets and close-cropped hair, like an undead Sgt. Pepper, and a new album, The Black Parade. Its title track, Welcome to the Black Parade, was a full-blown emo goth anthem with a chorus worthy of Queen. MCR's new album debuted at number two on the Billboard 200, and the single not only topped the modern rock chart for seven weeks, it broke into the pop top ten, reaching number nine on the Hot 100. Emo was now so hot, songs associated with the scene that were not even punk were scaling the charts. Gym Class Heroes, a rap rock band signed to Decadence and Fueled by Ramen, recorded Cupid's Chokehold, with Patrick Stump singing. This Fallout Boy seal of approval pushed the single, which borrowed its chorus from an old Supertramp song, to number four on the Hot 100 in March 2007. 
It was around this time that Fall Out Boy dropped their eagerly anticipated follow-up to the Cork Tree album. Appropriately titled Infinity on High, the disc kicked off with a flex. They titled the opening track Thriller, after the blockbuster Michael Jackson album, and they invited their then-label boss, rapper Jay-Z, to open the track and the album Like a Hype Man. Infinity on High's first single, This Ain't a Scene, It's an Arms Race, was equally imperial, Fallout Boy feeling their dominance by structuring the main hook as a crowd chant. So primed were Fallout Boy's fans that This Ain't a Scene, It's an Arms Race debuted on the Hot 100 all the way up at number two fueled by more than 160,000 first-week downloads on iTunes. In fact, Fallout Boy would have debuted at number one if it hadn't been for The Boss Man's fiance, Beyonce, holding down the top slot with her smash, Irreplaceable. Arms Race was a flashy hit, but not as enduring as Fallout Boy's follow-up. Thanks for the memories. Spent about two months longer on the Hot 100, even though it only peaked at number 11. By 2007, while emo was now the established term of art for poppy-sounding punk music, the truth was, the lines between pop-punk and emo had completely blurred. Several hits could have qualified for either moniker. The summer 2007 breakthrough of Paramore was a case in point. Fronted by singer-songwriter Haley Williams, a powerful singer who told Atlantic Records she wanted to front a rock band rather than sing solo dance pop, Paramore's songs had the lyrical urgency of emo and the jittery speed of pop punk. Misery Business, the lead single from their album Riot, reached number three on the modern rock chart, at a time when few female-fronted bands were charting at alternative radio, as well as number 26 on the Hot 100. And then there were the acts originally associated with pop-punk or emo rebooting themselves out of those genres entirely, and still scoring hits. Avril Lavigne teamed with hitmaker Dr. Luke on the mega-pop track Girlfriend, a bratty, punk-in-attitude cheerleader chant that reached number one on the Hot 100 in the spring of 07. Hey, hey, yeah, yeah, 
Plain White Tees, a band whose previous singles had been crashing emo punk, found their greatest success with the straight-up acoustic pop song Hey There Delilah. The most emo thing about it was songwriter Tom Higginson's singing voice, and it reached number one that summer. Hey there, Delilah, what's it like in New York City? I'm a thousand miles away, but girl, tonight you look so pretty. Yes, you do. Emo's imperial phase began to draw to a close by 2008, when Paramore recorded a single, Decode, for the blockbuster film Twilight. Panic at the Disco returned with the Beatlesque album Pretty Odd, which won critical acclaim but sold far less than their debut had. And on the theatrical stage, a new show billing itself as the first emo rock musical opened in Los Angeles on its way to Broadway. Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson was reimagined history more than half a decade before Hamilton, with the titular seventh president of the United States dressed in trademark skinny jeans and singing about his frustrations with the federal government. I'm not that guy. Life sucks, and my life sucks in particular. Life sucks. Gradually, almost imperceptibly, the zeitgeisty energy began to shift away from emo. In 2009, at the peak of EDM and Lady Gaga, the decadence and, fueled by ramen labels, scored their biggest hit with the dance pop song Good Girls Go Bad, a single by Cobra Starship featuring TV actress Leighton Meester of Gossip Girl. It reached number seven on the Hot 100. And in 2010, Paramore's Haley Williams scored her biggest pop hit singing the hook on Airplanes, a number two Hot 100 smash by rapper B.O.B. I can really use a wish right now, wish right now. Emo hadn't experienced a backlash so much as a gradual fizzle, which was fortunate because it meant the bands Emo made famous never really went away. Fallout Boy remained hitmakers deep into the 2010s, even as their songs edged away from punk. They scored big radio hits with 2013's impressively titled My Songs Know What You Did in the Dark, Light Em Up. and 2014's Centuries, a top 10 hit built out of an interpolation of Suzanne Vega's Tom's Diner. It remains Fall Out Boy's most popular song on Spotify. Paramore 
Paramore scored their biggest hit in 2014 with the R&B-flavored pop track Ain't It Fun, which reached number 10. Ain't it fun? Panic at the Disco converted itself to a solo project for singer Brendan Urie. Always a theatrical singer, 2016's Death of a Bachelor found Urie singing as if he was on a Broadway stage. It was Panic's first ever number one album. Watching the sky fall, the lace in your dress tangles my neck. How do I? Between Panic albums, Yuri actually acted on Broadway, taking the lead role in the long-running musical Kinky Boots for 10 weeks. When Yuri came back with a new Panic at the Disco album, 2018's Pray for the Wicked, he had fully converted the project to pure pop and scored Panic's biggest hit ever, the ebullient High Hopes. As nice as it was to see the millennial stars in Fallout Boy, Panic, and Paramore continuing to generate hits, none of them was trying all that hard to maintain a punk sound. But the members of Generation Z, who were children in the aughts, never lost their fondness for pop punk and emo. Those genres have experienced a renaissance on the charts just in the last couple of years. Willow Smith, daughter of Will Smith and Jada Pinkett, went straight to the source. Previous singles and albums by Willow were dance pop, hip hop, and neo soul, but her 2021 hit, Transparent Soul, was co written and features drumming by none other than Blink 182's Travis Barker. Or try former rapper Machine Gun Kelly, who has abandoned trap beats and is now wielding a guitar and singing songs with emo titles like Bloody Valentine. Of course, the biggest new artist of 2021, Olivia Rodrigo, scored a number one hit this summer with the straight-up pop-punk of Good For You. It so closely echoed Paramore's misery business that Rodrigo wound up giving Paramore a co-writing credit. Now you can be a better man for your brand new For You is still in the Hot 100's Top 10 as of this week. If you turn on your local Top 40 station, there's a good chance you'll hear it within the hour. Back in 2015, when Green Day were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, presenting them for induction was none other than Fallout Boy, 
the band who, in terms of punk-to-pop crossover, had, in essence, succeeded them. Both Patrick Stump and Pete Wentz spoke at the podium, in awe of their heroes, and Wentz alluded to the fact that the two bands will always be conjoined in the public's mind. The impact that, that Green Day has had on pop culture, when we walk through an airport, uh, about 80% of the time when someone takes a picture with us, you, you hear them walk off and they're like, holy shit, I just got a picture with fucking Green Day. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally true. <laughs> now, Fall Out Boy has never had the honor of playing with Green Day, and honestly, a part of us kind of likes it that way. Because Green Day is literally one of the best live bands on the planet Earth. By the way, Pete Wentz spoke too soon. In 2021, after concerts reopened following the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, Fallout Boy joined Green Day, as well as Weezer, on the touring Hella Mega Festival. Mind you, the two bands have yet to share the stage, but the tour is scheduled to run through next July. Maybe Fallout Boy will have a chance to pull out this cover they did live on stage in the Philippines back in 2007. Then, as now, game recognizes game, punks give it up for fellow punks, and it's never a bad time to honor your heroes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Melanfi. That's me. My producer is Asha Saluja, and we also had help from Rosemary Belson. June Thomas is the senior managing producer and Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the Hit Parade back your way. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanfi. to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.